Hello, and welcome to another episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Megan Lee. And tonight, we're lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Vic James, who is here to talk to us about writing dystopian fiction in an arguably already dystopian world. Uh, so good evening, Vic. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself and your work? I would. Hi there. Um, and thank you for, for giving me that doctor there. It's, um, <laughs> that's, from about, that's from about 15 years ago and has absolutely no relevance to my work other than the sort of little smile I can make when people mention it. Um, yeah, you can't see me smiling. That's a shame. So uh, I write as Vic James. Um, I, my day job for um, about 10 years now has been uh, current affairs TV. Uh, I'm a producer and a director. I started off making investigations for Channel 4 News and now I make um, sort of current affairs standalones uh, on topics like Brexit and the US election. So I'm sure uh, you uh, won't ever at all be asking me about whether that's influenced my view of dystopian writing. Um, and in fact, nobody's ever asked me that question before. Not. Um, so <laughs> my books are, um, it's a trilogy. It's just finished, um, just being completed. They're called the Dark Gifts Trilogy. They're set in a alternate contemporary Britain um, that is ruled by a 1%. Um, and the thing about this 1% is they don't just have wealth. They don't just have uh, extreme social status. They don't just have fast cars and really, really big houses. Um, they also have magic. And the flip side is that for the rest of us, the 99% um, who don't have magic, we have to give 10 years of our life to effectively to them, uh, technically to the state. Um, but every now and then you could get called up into personal service on uh, on one of their sort of palatial uh, homes. So that's the, the setup of my world. Um, my comedy pitch was um, uh, Game of Thrones meets Downton Abbey uh, in a world where Voldemort won. Um, I just sort of said that because, you know, what writer hasn't cringed about the whole sort of it's A meets B, but C. Um, but people got it, so it kind of became the official pitch. Um, and it does actually do a, actually a pretty good job of, of, of describing the books. So, um, yeah, uh, they've been a sort of labour of three years love and it's just completed. Fantastic. Um, well, actually, that was my going to be my first question. Talking about the, the the fantastic Joe Pitt really sums up the the feel and the world of Gilded Cage, um, and it tells us a little bit about the central theme of the series, which is the unequal distribution of power. Uh, and as you've already mentioned, in this case, extreme magical power. So, um, amongst the many dystopian books that you know we see that are set in the US. Yours has a very British flavour to it, um, and indeed Britain's history of inherited wealth and stark class divides provides the perfect setting for such a tale. So did you intend to be provocatively political? Um, did you intend to make a comment on contemporary British society when you started writing these books? Yeah, I mean, it would be a pretty whopping coincidence if I didn't. Um, I mean, it, it, it came directly out of two things, um, one of which I... Uh, sort of do talk about a lot because it is quite um, it's quite accessible it's quite easy to talk about um, and that is uh, things like the Occupy protest um, the whole sort of rhetoric around the 1% and the 99% um, you know sort of dwindling social opportunity um, it, it's very much about um, 
what we're seeing is a kind of a new kind of inherited wealth. You know, I mean, in Britain, we have uh, the aristocracy who obviously a brilliant sort of emblem of that, a brilliant symbol. But, you know, with the rise of kind of a new sort of super rich class, if you like, then then opportunity and wealth is being locked away even more securely. Um, you know, aristocrats would, would put their money in their homes and in their land, and then they would put a wall around their land. Um, and there's actually a wall right at the beginning of, my book, uh, we have a, a young girl who is fleeing from one of the estates, running desperately towards the wall where she hopes that she will be able to escape. So, yes, it, it's very British and it rose out of like British aristocratic history. It rose out of um, contemporary events that I was covering for the news. Um, it rose out of this very sort of politicised rhetoric about the 1% and the 99%. Um, something that I don't talk about as much because you know it's a little bit weird to be sort of bearing your soul to a bunch of people who sort of also want to ask you about um you know are you a plotter or a pantser but something that was really important to me um it, at the time I started writing it I was also personally feeling pretty sort of desperate and stuck in a way and you know I say this as someone who I come from quite a, you know, a, a very economically modest background but I've had the brilliant advantage of a, an amazing education I was a scholarship girl um, you know I went to a great university so I've been given lots of sort of opportunities to if you like be economically successful um, but because you know the, the arts and social justice you know writing reporting because those were the things that were really precious to me um, they're not things that get you a big paycheck um, in the world we live in. Um, they're things that young people are finding increasingly difficult to get access to. And they're things that me, as someone who was sort of mid-career, who was looking around at friends who had chosen careers like finance or law, um, and were sort of talking about, you know, well, where should we buy our second home? And at that point, I was renting a room in London, and I thought, not only am I never going to be able to afford to buy a home of my own, I'm never even going to be able to afford to rent a home of my own. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just going to be sort of stuck in this shared house, in this single room next to the kitchen. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm sort of staring down the barrel of this future. And although I am a very sort of optimistic and bouncy person, um, that was pretty terrifying to me so the books also kind of came from that they actually came from a, a quite a sort of dark point in my own life when I was just thinking ah, you know this isn't this isn't an abstract concern this isn't an abstract issue um, this is also basically my life and I've been given all of these opportunities so what is this like for people who have never had those opportunities so um, that's that's the other bit of it. So if the books do sound angry and if the situation that's sort of depicted in them is quite bleak, um, it's kind of because they came from, from a moment like that for me. That didn't hit me immediately. <laughs> you know, it came to me in a kind of a classic light bulb moment when I was, I was making a programme um, for BBC Two called The Super Rich and Us um, when I was 
you know, sort of out and about filming in this world. You know, I was going to stately homes where they were having, you know, sort of supercar rallies. Um, you know, I was sort of filming at um, kind of sort of glittering social events where they were having auctions of luxury watches. You know, people were spending tens of thousands of pounds on luxury watches. And, and, and just talking to the people in that world. And um, the thing that struck me was just the thing that they all had in common, you know, whether they spent their money on, you know, that I met a guy who bought a Premier League football club. Um, you know, I met a guy who campaigned for um, the, the national minimum wage. Uh, both of them were billionaires. And the one thing they had in common was this sort of sense that their money sort of gave them the ability to do anything um you know they could use it for good or for evil or just for whatever the hell they liked and a, a little sort of bidding went off in my head that the way they talked about this money it, it was almost like magic and then that was when I kind of sort of felt all of these different bits of my life sort of connect up you know the bit of me that made these tv programs the bit of me that that reads and loves fantasy and the thing I love about fantasy is that it takes our world and it puts all these extra layers on it and sometimes there are so many layers or the costume is so fantastic that we have to dig a little harder to see how it connects with our world I mean I remember the first time somebody said to me you do know that middle earth is basically about Tolkien recovering from the first world war and I was like what <laughs> you know sometimes you have to you you know the the, the the parallels aren't so obvious i think in my book you know the parallels are glaringly obvious um but i make no apology for that it's 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 the book i wanted to write at the time i wanted to write it um and it and it, yeah guess what it ends up saying the things i wanted to say um which is that this system is just freaking awful have you had any sort of feedback from readers about how they felt the the politics in the book came across? <laughs> uh, I've had a few people say, "Oh, it's really quite political, isn't it?" Um, but um, <laughs> uh, you know, which is why I kind of why I chose to tell the story through uh, through two families. I, I chose to tell it as a story of people within the system because ultimately, I mean, this is the thing that I've seen. Um, you know, time and time again, just look at Occupy, right? I mean, they were camped in the heart of London for months on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral in the middle of the city of London. And it was almost this kind of sort of medieval moment, you know, it was it was a bit like a sort of a kind of peasant's revolt. Um, it was so public and it was so sort of symbolic, um, just sort of seeing them there. Um, and yet, you know, where does that rhetoric go? What can we say that Occupy is actually produced can we say that things have got any better well if you look at the economic reports that are coming out um no <laughs> you know and, and and just to be really clear i'm not here talking about kind of party political economic policy i'm talking about this extraordinary kind of trend in globalization around the world whereby the rich just keep getting richer and the share of the world's wealth held by that one percent is at kind of fantastical proportions, right? I mean, it is almost literally unbelievable in the same way that that some readers who don't like fantasy find magic unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's... it's. Uh, I did also just want to write a cool book uh, with Wicked Aristocrats <laughs> in which sort of crazy times happened. So, you know, I, I really didn't want it to be a, a tract or a polemic. It's not an argument. Um 
And I don't really get into party politics a lot as a person. I mean, partly because of my job, uh, you know, because of the issues I report on. I can't have a kind of public political stance anyway. Um, you know, I, I can't go out and, and sort of campaign against particular government initiatives or, or reforms or whatever the euphemism of the day is. So, you know, I, I can't do that. Um, but I did want to kind of put all of that into a book and, and I just wanted to try and tell it in a way that, that, that doesn't feel tired and that does feel personal. And, and I think that's, you asked me what sort of response I've got from readers. And I think that's something that they've all sort of connected with. I've had a lot of people sort of say, Oh, well, when I first read this sort of idea of the, the days, the slave days, the 10 years that you have to give to the state. I was like, wow, and yeah, that's ridiculous. You know, nobody in modern Britain today would ever agree to spend 10 years, you know, just going to a factory town and having to spend 10 years labour in a factory or, you know, having to go work in a um, in a hospital or down a mine or, you know, in a, in a sort of food processing plant. Um, you know, nobody would do that. People wouldn't stand for it. Um, and then they sort of say, mm, yeah, and then I kind of thought, hang on a minute, you know, I haven't paid off my student debt, that's going to take me 10 years to pay off. You know, I haven't paid off my mortgage, that's going to take me 25 years to pay that off. You know, we, we're already locked into economic relationships that we've not chosen. Um, and I and I think like seeing readers tell me that they've kind of they've made that connection as they read the book. I find that really satisfying, you know, um, because that's that sort of kind of what I wanted it to to be. You can take something familiar, make it strange and then wait for your readers to find the familiarity. And that's hugely satisfying. I'm really glad you've mentioned that, actually, because it kind of leads on to uh, my next question, which was actually about the the, the fantasy elements. Um, you know, and the speculative fiction's kind of long been known as as an arena in which to discuss you know kind of social hot topics of the day. You know, yeah. in a more kind of like maybe a more palatable way, maybe a way that is not going to send people running for the hills straight off. Um, so. How would you, you know, we've talked a bit almost like the magic money tree and how magic is is so similar in a way to extreme wealth. Um, how would you go about you kind of, you know, bringing these fantastical elements into a story? They're such fun books and I'm really looking forward to reading the last one. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, thank you for that. I mean, I'm, I'm just a firm believer that anything is better with magic, right? Anything is better with dragons. <laughs> anything is better with kind of villainous yet sort of strangely alluring um kind of wicked aristocrats i mean you know in a way it's 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 a little bit of a no-brainer i mean I, I i didn't want to make the economic parallels something that was very clear and straightforward if that helps because um you know it, it's it's not as simple as rich people bad everybody else good um, and that was always sort of super important to me. I mean, you know, in the books, we've got um, sort of in, in, in book one. So just sort of in brief, what happens in book one is we meet a, a normal Manchester family that's decided it's all going to start its its days together. Uh, the parents have made that decision because basically certain opportunities in society just sort of open up to you once you've got your 10 years out of the way and you're a full citizen. So they've decided that they'll all go together. Um, to a town and the kids who are at that stage uh, 18, 16 and 10 um, will 
you know, they'll then kind of emerge and they'll be in their 20s and they won't have this hanging over their life. Um, and of course, the plan goes horribly wrong. This isn't really a spoiler. This all happens in chapter one. Um, and they get separated. And some of them go to uh, a, a grand estate where they are literally put uh, right up close and personal with uh, the, the most eminent family in the land, the Jardines. And um, some of the family members uh, find themselves in Millmore, um, which, uh, uh, trivia fact, um, Millmore, I, um, <laughs> it was originally called Milton, um, and that was a homage <laughs> to... That was a homage to um, Mrs. Gaskell's North and South, where she I was going to say North and South, yeah, yeah, it's not, yeah. I, like Mrs. Gaskell fangirl here, um, so yeah, which of course is kind of about the, the the horrors of the Industrial Revolution, and if you like the beginning of this system, um, you know, the the beginning of people kind of being just locked away for their lives, not because they've done a crime, but just because they're poor and uneducated. Yeah, I mean, once you've kind of sort of got a scenario like that. It, and what I sort of really wanted to do, I mean, I thank you for saying the books are fun because, like I've said, you know, I didn't want this to be a polemic. I didn't want this to be preachy. You know, I'm, I'm, I do enough of that in the day job, the serious stuff. Um, so, you know, I, I, I really just sort of wanted to, um, I, I just wanted to tell a story that was also just a, a bloody good romp. Um, and, and also one that was kind of emotional and sort of tugged at the heartstrings, which is why, Although when you say it's a political book, people sort of have visions of, you know, Parliament and it's all very abstract and it's all very dry. Um, what you've ultimately got is is two families that are affecting each other's lives in ways that they could never have anticipated and where their own relationships within those families are just kind of unravelling. Um, so it is very much... Um, it is very much a, a sort of a book on a, on the personal level and about, I mean, all books are, aren't they? They have to be, if they're going to have a heart as well as a, you know, a brain and an opinion and a mouth. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that was why I, I, I kind of put two families uh, at, at the heart of the books. Um, and and then also the, the, the conflict within those families, you know, that some of the super rich people are good. I'm putting little air quotes around that. Um, you know, we don't see many of uh, the average people who are bad, but we certainly see the average people who are naive. We see the average people who just don't understand how exploitative the system they're in is. We see average people who are kind of seduced by the wealth and the power of their elite and who are, you know, so desperate to be a part of that world that they take that side, even though it's the side of the people who are grinding them down. Um, so, yeah, I, I wanted to have a lot of fun with with sort of, you know, where people are. Um, and the beautiful thing about magic is it just makes, you know, every bang, every explosion even bigger and even better. Well, um, let's talk a bit about um, creating sympathy for those um, potential antagonists, um, because, you know, they are, you know, when you start out reading a book and you read it, it's a kind of a book about haves and have nots. You're kind of predisposed to dislike the haves, you know, seeing that they've got everything and they're treating these people really badly. But in your uh, series, this is not always the case, as we've just kind of touched upon. Um 
clearly, you know, you did want to create sympathy for kind of these these characters. And I think that that's you've done that very, very well. And there's definitely some the, the kind of equals are some of my favorite characters in the book. Um, but how did you was that a, a really important aspect of characterization for you? It was really important. Yeah, it's it's and, you know, this word sympathy is a really interesting one, isn't it? It's. I would say empathy, which is a slightly less sort of partisan. Um, you know, you can yeah. think somebody's a scumbag and still sort of be empathetic about the reasons that have sort of have made them that way. Um, so, yes, I mean, you know, it, 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 it's I, I really very much wanted to put um, sort of some characters on on a well, I mean, a, a lot of a lot of characters go on this sort of journey that takes them somewhere that's almost the opposite from where they begin. And those are people on sort of both sides of the haves and the have-not barriers. Um, there's also a couple of characters who they're fixed on their goal from the beginning. So there's one in particular, Buddha, um, who is uh, a very ambitious female politician. And when we meet her, she has very few redeeming features. Um, and indeed, by the end of book three, um, you know, uh, you you may close the book sort of feeling pretty much the same way that Buddha has few redeeming features. But my hope was that even then, sort of like over the course of three books, you would understand um, and possibly even admire. I mean, I love it when people sort of tweet at me, you know, grudging admiration for Buddha for doing this. <laughs> um, you know, I almost kind of sort of like like those like those tweets the most, or when somebody said, you know, sort of, oh my God, you know, sort of Gavar, he's the sort of bad boy, playboy, eldest son of the wealthy family. I mean with Gavar, it was it was very, very intentional. Uh, you know, in the you're about three pages into the book when Gavar shoots dead uh, the woman he supposedly loves, who is trying to escape his family's mansion, holding his baby, um, you know, and, and you would think that would be a kind of point of no return for anybody. And it's not that I necessarily sort of want Gavar to return, but I wanted to get into why he did it. Um, and I certainly with him was really curious in like just how far you can push empathy and turn it into sympathy. Um so that was that was definitely a conscious choice. Well, um, do you want to talk about? Uh, we've mentioned Buddha already, and I did have a question kind of structured for Buddha specifically because, uh, as you said, I mean she she doesn't have hugely redeeming qualities. She's quite obnoxious. She can be thoughtless. She's certainly power hungry. But the thing that struck me um, from meeting her for the very first time is that she's a woman struggling to be seen as a viable authority in a patriarchal arena. And I felt there's some, there's some times in the book where I felt genuinely sorry that she is not recognised, like her ability, her political abilities are not recognised. And she's not treated, ironically, as an equal in an equal world. Yes. Um, well, why did you want to kind of create this kind of female character because she she's interesting how that she sits kind of halfway between villainess and and heroine yeah i mean to me she's a she's a, she's a little bit like um carrie underwood in 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 house of cards or like cersei lannister in in uh, a song of fire and ice i mean I, I these are sort of women that you you kind of love to hate they're all blonde i don't know what that's all about um but um and i find those women absolutely just just compelling because you know i i think as 
the world in general and as the publishing industry, um, you know, kind of sort of wakes up to intersectional issues and issues about, um, you know, the, 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 the huge importance of diversity, of kind of, you know, accurate representation on the page. Um, and with somebody like Buddha, you know, sort of what I wanted to do was also to say that, you know, there's been a lot of debate, hasn't there, around how women are represented. And I think we're, we're sort of finally past that whole, um, sort of strong female character thing. And, and we are reclaiming for women, um, uh, for female characters, the ability to be bitches. I'm putting air quotes around that. I, I actually got an email from somebody saying, I hate the way you use the word bitch for Buddha all the way through the book. Um, and you don't reply to it. <laughs> you don't reply to angry emails from people. Um, but, but I thought it was a really interesting one. And, and what I would have said if I had written back was, but look at who is calling her a bitch. <laughs> you know, um, the, 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 the book doesn't have a narrative voice. Everything you hear is, is, is somebody saying that or is reported speech. So, who is calling her a bitch and, and, and why are they doing that? Um, and actually the result is, is that pretty much everybody is, um, in this world. Um, you know, even the good guys, because she represents, irrespective of her gender, she represents the oppressiveness of her class. But within her class, um, as you've said, you know, that there, there is no, there has never been a, a female chancellor of Great Britain. And that is her, that is her stated goal. In the same way that the Chancellor of Britain, when you first, uh, when the book first opened, um, is, is called Winterbourne Zelston, and he is one of the very few people of colour among the ranks of the British equals. And again, you, you, you get that. It's, it's sort of told at a, at a lower level sort of through the books because, um, Zelston isn't one of the, the, the POV characters, but it, it's how he is regarded by others within uh, the equal class is, is a really good index of, you know, just how sort of shitty that person is or not. Um, you know, this, this is, a, this is a, a kind of an elite which had kind of entrenched prejudices all the way through, prejudices against women, prejudices against, you know, people of different sexualities, um, prejudice against people of colour. And what I wanted with Buddha was to be able to take someone who is sort of despised from all sides um, and yet sort of who is a, a, a heroine slash anti-heroine slash antagonist slash protagonist. She's kind of, she's just who she is. And her fight, it, she does things that are absolutely contemptible. I'm not suggesting that anybody admire Buddha for her methods. But I did want there to be some sort of grudging kernel of admiration for just her bloody determination. You know, she will not. She's a dog with a bone. She just, she won't give up. Uh, and she, she comes to a reckoning in book three because whenever you pursue something wholeheartedly, it will be at the detriment and to the cost of other things. And in book three, Buddha learns the extent of the price she's paid for her ambition and yet I didn't want to therefore sort of sit in judgment and say, ha ha, so your ambition is worthless. Um, and the, the, the final chapter that I have with Buddha in the book, um, I wanted it to have a kind of ambivalence, a kind of ambiguity to it. And the people who've sort of read the early versions of the book, because it, it's, uh, I can say it's only just come out, but, um, you know, readers who sort of got early copies on NetGalley or, or things like that. They've sort of talked about how that bit of the story is 
it's kind of is open and is satisfyingly so. And yeah, you're not going to end the book loving Buddha, and you'll probably end the book sort of still hating her. But all I wanted was for you to end the book understanding her better, and I think you do. Well, it's really interesting based on your previous comment about um, strong female characters who kind of had had their day, and and I'm a bit like you because I have a big thing with Cersei Lannister in the TV series, mm. in that um, they make her far more sympathetic than they do in the books. In the books, she's just mm. a psycho. Yes, um, and you tend to find in in a lot of modern things that there aren't really bad women that you can love. I mean, the perfect example for me, kid of the eighties was Alan Rickman in Die Hard. He's like, you don't want him to win. He can't win. Everything will be wrong if he wins. And yet you're rooting for him because he's so cool. And you don't tend to get that with, with women. They're sort of either, you know, really bad or really good. Um, I mean, I watched Maleficent the other day thinking, you know, that'd be an interesting one, but she was pretty much good all the way through, just a bit grumpy. Um, and, you know, so I, I kind of really embraced the idea of Buddha with her just being, like you say, a bitch all the way through, but at the same time having empathy rather than sympathy for her. I think that's, I think we need more characters like that going forward. I think violence has become a bit of a shorthand. I don't know if you'd agree with me, but, but, you know, and I do sort of love these girls. We've all read the books where literally in chapter one, you know, like she's knifed somebody in the throat. Um, and we just sort of know that she's going to be a, a kind of a kick-ass heroine. I'm putting little kind of quote marks around that again. Um, and I do think that, you know, sort of violence has, has sort of become a way of sort of saying, Oh, look at this transgressive yet somehow overwhelmingly sort of charismatic and positive female role model. You know, as, as a sort of as a way of, of of sort of getting away from the you know the, the worthy female heroine, and I think that's fine. Um, but you know, I think someone who's sort of fundamentally good, but also just happens to be sort of fairly handy with a dagger. I, I kind of want my ambivalent female possible villains to 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 kind of you know go go further than that. Um, it's uh, so you know, Buddha never commits violence. Um, and actually at sort of various points through the book where she is responsible for authorizing violence through parliamentary means, um, you know, she is, she is ambivalent about it and she expresses real distaste for the few characters who are, um, very kind of sort of straightforwardly just, just up for killing whoever's in their way. Uh, you know, so, so for me, that, that sort of really, that kind of really mattered as 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 well. I wanted her transgressions to be kind of really moral ones. Um, and if you like to spring from something that under other circumstances we would applaud. I mean, there was a really interesting thread on Twitter, wasn't there? I I I, I sort of read it and then it was like sub threads and oh my god, like that whole thing just kind of just I, I couldn't follow all of it. But but the fundamental sort of gist of it was Ask yourself, if you're reacting badly to a female character in a book, if you're effectively sort of saying, wow, she's a bitch, um, ask yourself, would you have the same reaction to a male character acting in the same way? You know, so if Buddha was a man, um, would people be kind of queuing up to say, oh, this character, you know, she's so snaky, uh, or he's so snaky, you know, gosh, he's so unpleasant. Or would you actually be saying, ha ha, you know, oh, I love a, I love a villainous aristocratic politician. I, I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, really, really interesting conversation. And I've tried to do that 
consciously with myself now in books you know sort of when I when I read a character um if I do have a kind of ooh, ooh, don't like this character and just to think well what if I switch their gender would I have the same response to them and certainly as a writer that's something I, I'm now trying to sort of think of consciously when I'm when I'm writing yeah the, the idea about um you know swapping a gender out and then asking yourself whether you know, you'd still have the same response to that character if they were of the opposite gender. I mean, that is something that we talk a lot about on this podcast. And we often find uh, that the answer is that you, a reader does have uh, a, di- a different reaction, which kind of just goes to show that we still have a lot of um, stereotypes and tropes to challenge kind of within the field of genre. So, Vic, you touched on this uh, a little bit before, um, the, the importance of uh, telling your story through the eyes of these two quite uh, diametrically opposed families, uh, which I really liked. And, and I think that the theme of, of family conflict and family drama and the bonds between family, uh, that really comes through very strongly. Um, but how did you go about kind of creating these two families? And what were you trying to kind of say uh, with in representation. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I just find families absolutely fascinating, absolutely fascinating, because, you know, they're almost like sort of the perfect sort of control group, aren't they? You know, I mean, certainly in the case of the Jardines, you've got three sons, all born into the same circumstances, raised by the same parents. Um, and yet they've turned out very differently you know sort of when we when we first meet them the impression we get is that is that Gavar the heir is this sort of um kind of boorish callous playboy um you know that 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 Jenna the middle child is is uh, sort of overlooked and and underappreciated um that's because he's a he's a, a extremely rare anomaly he he has no magical ability and then there's the the third son Cillian who is um sort of generally up to no good in the woods and really kind of up to no good just about everywhere he's very magically powerful um so i just thought it was fascinating what i love about families is 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 how they all turn out so differently um and and interestingly it's i mean if you look at history i mean if you look at um you know if you look at uh, you know richard the third and his brothers um you know elder brother king edward the fourth um you know sort of uh, middle brother clarence and then the 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 third one richard of gloucester who um you know climbs his his sort of his devious way to the throne and there's something you know that's why we're so fascinated by the Plantagenets. Um, you know, if it was sort of like a succession of cousins sort of battling one another, we really wouldn't care. But this is, this is three brothers, um, that are kind of, you know, sort of ripping themselves and their family apart for, for the ultimate prize. Um, you know, or sometimes circumstance will deliver people into kind of very different destinies. I mean, you know, look at, look, there's another bunch of three siblings, okay, that, the, the, the children of henry the eighth uh you know so you've got uh sort of mary elizabeth and edward and in that case you know it's the boy who has to um inherit first uh but we all know how that story turns out so i think there's just something really really fascinating about seeing people who should be closer than close you know parents and children and and siblings um you know sort of seeing them 
finding themselves in in opposition to their family's values. Um, and in a way, we do see the same thing in the Hadley family because I, I took a bit of a risk when I wrote Abby, who's the, the, the eldest child of the Hadleys. She's 18 when we meet her. She's a very studious girl. She's very smart. Um, but... She loves popular culture. She loves celebrity culture. And, of course, in this world, that is the world of the equals. You know, they are glamorous. They are very attractive. Um, they, they have these sort of enviable lifestyles. And for somebody like Abby, they're so far removed from her sort of normal existence as a schoolgirl in Manchester who, you know, dreams of being a doctor one day. They're so far removed that they have that kind of glamour of you know, Hollywood movie stars for us or, you know, sort of Instagram lifestyles. The the the, the, the aristocrats in my books have this this uh Instagram lifestyle. So Abby is she sort of yearns for that. And what I thought really interesting was that people are quite judgy of her. Readers I found a quite like sort of, oh, I thought Abby was supposed to be smart, but here she is kind of sort of mooning over the mooning over the lifestyle of, of these people, um, you know, and falling in love with them. When she gets sent to the to, to the aristocratic estate of the Jardines, she she falls in love with the middle brother. And people are sort of going, oh, you know, gosh, she's a bit disappointing. <laughs> I would have hoped for more for, from an intelligent girl. Um, but sort of what I really wanted to to kind of to explore there is that she also, in the, just as much as the Jardines, she is a product of her world. And that it can actually be really, really difficult to step outside of your world and to point a finger at something about it and say, that's wrong. Um, you know, I mean, look at how long it it, it, it took this country to legalize uh gay marriage you know look at how difficult the battle still is to be getting recognition for um you know sort of people's right to determine their own gender uh you know how they wish to uh the 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 title they wish to use you know just just all of these things that hopefully in kind of five years ten years however long it takes society will look back and will just sort of say Oh my God! You know what kept people at the time from seeing that obviously this this had to happen. Um, so it's kind of the same way with with Abby. You know, I wanted her to be so much sort of a product of this sort of comfortable everyday kind of sort of humdrum kind of family life um, that that it had never really sort of occurred to her to question it. I mean, it certainly never occurred to me to question. Um, you know, that my mum and dad went out. Uh, to work every day to pay the mortgage. So it, it doesn't, you know, I, I wasn't at that time sort of thinking, my God, we are the oppressed underclass. We are the 99%. Um, you know, I just thought it was my mum and dad doing a job to pay for a house because that was what people did. Um, so Abby is is kind of a more extreme version than that, I guess, just because her world is more extreme. Um, can, so, so I wanted, Can I pick up on something you said? Because hmm. um, you, you were talking about how readers were disappointed when Abby falls in love with someone, you know, she was smarter than that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's just something that I find really frustrating um, that you have a character who is intelligent, but as soon as they fall in love, they're somehow lesser than which, but again, it's one of these ones where if it was a male character, uh, I really can't see people having that same kind of response it's disappointing and especially frustrating because I love a good romance and I'm perfectly intelligent and clever, you know, and I, I live vicariously through Mr. Darcy. It's fine. 
I, I was at a college with, I, I just, uh, with yeah, a girl I, it's who. It's an interesting point. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and I, I, I think it's, I think it's super. I think it's super important, and it's still, you know, at, at, on the one hand, I think it it springs from a really good place, which is, you know, once upon a time, the only stories women were allowed to have were marriage stories and love stories. You know, that was the only script we were given for literally centuries of literature. Um, you know, you knew it was uh, a comedy you were watching if it ended with a wedding. Um, you know, you knew it was a tragedy if it ended with the lovers separated or dead, is usually both. Um, so I, I, I totally get where those, you know, where that sort of the, the spirit of that criticism. Um, but, but I do just find it limiting and, 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 and unrealistic as a criticism. I mean, you know, there was a girl who was a college with me, like ferociously bright, you know, like absolutely acing English literature at, um, you know, at Oxford. And when she finished her finals, she spent the entire rest of the summer lying in the college garden, reading her way through Jackie Collins, um, you know, Lace, Bonkbusters, Jilly Cooper. Um, and, you know, like how, how dare anybody say that, that, that A, this, this woman was not intelligent and B, that there was something wrong with her reading those things or, you know, finding that escapist and appealing and fun. And, you know, it's just, please. <laughs> You know, let us be both smart and romantic, please. Um, I've got one more sort of little romance bugbear that I want to get off my chest, which is um, which is this thing of insta love. Um, I think sometimes, you know, when we talk about tropes and how tropes are bad things, um, I completely agree when they are sort of stifling um, genuine creativity, when people are just reaching for a trope rather than actually thinking about what they're showing. Um, or even worse, when they're using a trope to kind of pander to, um, you know, sort of preferences or just kind of sort of like outdated models of, of how certain types of characters should behave. Um, but I want to put up like a small and spirited defense of, of insta-love because I think all it really actually is, is that moment when you first look at somebody and think, oh my God, you know, it, it, it it's... Um, you know, for, for, for people who identify as as sexual beings, um, you know, I think that's a pretty common experience. Just looking at somebody and just thinking, oh, "You," <laughs> you know, and that is, and, and as Abby's story shows, that doesn't guarantee. That is no guarantee of you know a smooth ride thereafter, a happy romance, and wedding bells. Um, you know. Yes, fine. I do think it's a bit lazy if, you know, on page 10, your girl goes, <gasps> when she sees the handsome boy or girl um, or whomever. Uh, and then, you know, sort of like 200 pages later, they've just sort of cantered to a, a kind of sort of a happy wedding. Um, but if it starts like that and then goes on a journey to other places, um, then I think you should be allowed, even clever girls should be allowed that moment of just swooning and just letting their heart rule their head. Um, maybe I'm just talking from personal experience. <laughs> so that's my rant against people saying insta-love. I think it's a great rant. 
I, I actually just finished reading uh, Sweet Like Waves by Christina Perez, and mm. which is really fantastic. And it's a kind of retelling of um, Tristan and Isolde. Uh, and of course, uh, typical Goodreads reviews were saying things like, oh, it's the instant love, you know, like there's no way she'd have just fallen in love with him so quickly. And I kind of wanted to be I'm like, like, have these people no heart? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, also, if this is Tristan who's old, so what's wrong with them falling in love? I think romance storylines for female characters are really difficult. Um, they're really difficult, um, you know, and, and they're the sort of thing. I mean, personally, I can take it or leave it. Um, you know, I, I, I like a good romance. Rarely do I read a book where the romance plot is the main one. Um but I, you know, but, but, but I genuinely love it. And it's, as I say, it's a little bit like sort of strong female characters. What I don't want us, uh, you know, sort of ever to get into is, is this world where, you know, our female characters should be one thing or the other. I mean, you know, one book that I've, I've read recently and really, really loved is, um, is called The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue. Um, and it is quite literally a romp. It is a grand tour, um, sort of chase, part comedy, part thriller, mystery, an object is stolen by um, a, a sort of naughty young English aristocrat um, while he's on his grand tour. And with him is also a gentleman companion with whom he happens to be in love um, and his kick-ass sister. And the kick-ass sister has no interest in romance um, you know, uh, really none at all, and it's um, and it's so great. You know, the, the 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 romance story in the book is is between the two boys, and I'm just like, you know, let's 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 sort of stop getting hot under the collar one way or the other. You know, you don't have to be camp romance or or kind of um, you know sort of camp camp no romance. It's it's you know let's let our female characters get it on if they want to, um, you know, let them be good girls sexually, let them be asexual, just let, you know, but just, just stop policing kind of um, sort of romantic and sexual storylines for, for our characters. In fact, let's just pay attention to where sex comes up in, in sort of male storylines, like forced sex. Um, but anyway, I know that's, a, that's another um, classic topic of yours, so I, I won't go on that. There's, uh, there's, I was going to say there's none of that in my book, but there is a rather icky scene where Buddha is wondering just how much she can get out of her father-in-law. And oh, oh, God, I wasn't going to mention it, but <laughs> I was thinking it. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, I, I, that, was a weird, that was a weird chapter for me to write because, you know, here she is, a woman, effectively, she doesn't have a free choice. This, you see, this is the, the thing, and, and I, I wasn't sure how sort of explicitly to have spelled it out on the page, and I don't know if I would spell it out even more explicitly in the kind of Me Too world. It was written before Me Too, um, and it does sort of rest on, on the reader kind of grasping the fact that even though sort of Buddha chooses to make herself potentially sexually available to this repulsive older man, it's not a free choice because her society has has boxed her into that corner. So I I, I really wanted to um, I I really kind of wanted to be to be clear on that and and you know I I feel it's clear whether for some readers um, you know it, it I can't sort of retrospectively kind of stick a flag on that page and say this is what Me Too is all about. It's about um, you know sort of women who've 
felt they were put in a position of not having a choice other than to go along with this. It also incidentally comes out of um, a, a film I made for the news several years ago, which was about sexual harassment in Parliament, in the UK Parliament. Um, you know, sort of exactly that. I, I kind of got testimony from, um, you know, a, a number of young workers, men and women, um, predominantly women, but I was surprised at how many men um, also had stories to share of effectively sort of being expected to be either sort of sexually available or at any rate not sort of censorious or judgmental when sexual comments were made about them, you know, about their body or, uh, you know, about how sexually desirable they were. And uh, that's an abuse of power. That is that is power kind of bearing down on people who don't have the ability to or who don't feel they have the ability to behave in any other way because almost all of those people I spoke to just sort of thought, if I make a fuss, uh, I'll never get that job in politics that I want. Nobody can ever condemn them for that choice because for them, the structure of the society that they were operating in, in that case, the Houses of Commons, didn't give them a choice. There was no sort of clear reporting mechanism. There was no way they could raise that without without blame. And that's why it's taken, you know, sort of me too so long to, to kind of to come through the system. So that was, yeah, Buddha, Buddha has her... Buddha has her Me Too moment. And, you know, as I say, sort of retrospectively, I might have put a bit more kind of scaffolding and signposting around that to make sure that nobody's ever read it wrongly, as far as I'm concerned, which which is reassuring. It suggests that I've got the framework sufficiently clear in the books that it's, it's very obvious that although she may appear to agree of her own free will, she's actually not free to do so. Um, but, yeah, no, that was something I really wanted to, I, I really wanted to get in. Um, as I say, simply because it's come out of, you know, there's almost nothing in that book that's made up. <laughs> um, you know, it's all got some kind of real world analog that I can point to if you make me. Um, you know, it's all got kind of sort of evidence and journalism. I mean, I spent six, seven years making investigative reports and, and, and economic programs. And, you know, I, I understand the system that the books are kind of presenting in this sort of fantastical, fancy dress. So, Vic, you've obviously based the Dark Dark Gifts trilogy on um, the universal theme of wealth, which, irrelevant to politics, is always going to be a theme that people will understand. It will always be something to be very important. Um, and you've also um, covered family, so you've uh, covered parents, children and siblings. And these are obviously huge topics. And I wondered if in the next trilogy or book that you write, um, you're thinking that you would like to revisit them or do you want to try and do something new? I mean, do you feel that there are any aspects of the the wealth divide or of family division um, that you still haven't explored yet that you'd really like to do? Well, um, <laughs> having just come out of writing a, a really sort of really multi-stranded kind of multiple, multiple POV, kind of sort of sprawling <laughs> um, trilogy. I can tell you that I, I have already written the next book and it is, um, it's quite different and yet it's got a very similar DNA. So it is, it again sort of uses magic as kind of as, a, as, as an analogue for um identity within society it's set in uh, contemporary america 
Um, it's set in a, a sort of an affluent uh, town uh, in Connecticut called Sanctuary, and it's about the first modern witch trial. And in many ways, it is sort of quite explicitly about sexual politics. It is quite explicitly about the roles that society offers women. Um, and it's about the kind of power that sort of women have had historically and how they have used that and how that power is received in the society today. So effectively, it is a, uh, a high school scandal goes wrong. Um, uh, a young boy dies at a birthday party, 18th birthday party. Um, his ex-girlfriend is the daughter of the local witch and she's suspected of doing it by witchcraft. Then you have, so what I really wanted to get into there is a lot of it is about sort of female friendship. Um, so the witch has her coven, um, one of whom is the mother of the boy who's died. And it's also about sort of small town paranoia. Um, I mean, do you remember when <laughs> um, a few months ago now, a group of witches got together to curse President Trump? Do you remember that? <laughs> and And I just thought, and this is extraordinary. What if there really was a world where witches could get together to curse the president of the United States? What if witchcraft was real? And what if the sort of issues that we're seeing now around, um, you know, sort of women's autonomy, uh, the ability of women to speak out about their treatment by men, but also their treatment by society at large? Um, and, and how could magic imagined as a sort of a, a, a quite a feminine thing in this in this world sort of be a kind of a prism of that so if you like I'm I'm, I'm obviously like sort of addicted to using magic as a <laughs> as a as a kind of frame for stories about society now and I guess if if in the Dark Gifts book that frame was um, to help me talk about magic uh, to talk about money and to talk about wealth and particularly to talk about life opportunities and inequality um then in the new book it is going to be magic uh sort of as a frame to talk about um fear of the other to talk about intersectionality um to talk about women's role in society you know how women give up one identity for another so if you're a professional woman who's given up your uh identity in your professional life in order to be a wife and a mother and then something happens to your child, what does that do to you? So that's that's the new book. It's um, Stylistically, it's very different. It's uh, very short chapters, uh, three POV voices, um, very fast-moving. It's, it's really, it's a thriller. I've kind of written it as a thriller. Um, but the... So it's very different from kind of the sprawling, <laughs> you know, kind of sort of... Sort of um, multiple location it's very claustrophobic um and and uh, and i wanted to 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 pay homage to you know sort of some of my favorite writing like stephen king um it's sort of a little bit like under the dome but uh you know with with witches instead of aliens uh, it's kind of big little lies with witches that's the that's kind of the the pitch i've come up with so i'm not returning to the same themes that i did in the dark gifts trilogy just to come back to your question i'm not returning to wealth and family what i am returning to is sort of magic as if you like a, a lens through which to view our society today so the dark gifts trilogy 
gave us one particular sort of focus and Sanctuary is is going to give us another one. It's also hopefully quite funny <laughs> and a bit shocking. It's a bit, it's definitely a bit more, um, you know, I, I wanted to write something that felt less like a sort of a family saga, you know, the, the, the sort of the three-part family saga um, of, of the Dark Goose trilogy. I wanted to write something that is very, you know, quick, nimble, kind of page-turning, um, who knows if I've succeeded? But anyway, that's that's out in March next year. So the Dark Gifts trilogy reminds us that with a simple twist in history, the world we live in could be filled with magic, but we would nevertheless still be facing the same inequalities that we are so familiar with in our own reality. As a character, Buddha is unapologetic yet ambiguous and the type of female character who needs to be included in more fantasy novels. Thank you for joining us, Vic. Thanks for having me. Loved it. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.